Okay, so friends, today we're going to be continuing in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians, and I want to thank Sam, who's not here with us uh, today. He's out of town, but he preached all of Ephesians chapter 2, I think for the past three Sundays while I was away. And if you were here with us in the past three Sundays, you perhaps might have noticed that Ephesians chapter 2 is all about gospel unity, right? It's all about the close-knit affinity that gospel that the gospel produces between all of those who, who embrace it. And as I studied Ephesians chapter 3 today, pr- prepping to preach it, guess what topic it's still talking about? Gospel unity, again. And it, it really shocked me because I didn't realize how big of a point this whole gospel unity thing is in the book of Ephesians. In fact, it started to dawn on me that this really has been the underlying theme that we've been seeing throughout all the New Testament passages we've been studying. I don't know if you guys were with us when we went through this series, the book of Acts. What's that all about? It's all about gospel unity, right? Jews and Gentiles and different rituals and things like that uh, coming together in the gospel. Galatians, what's Galatians all about? Gospel unity. There's a circumcision group, the non-circumcision group. Philemon, it's all about gospel unity. And now Ephesians is all about gospel unity. And I started to realize that maybe this gospel unity thing is not just one piece of the gospel. You know, it's not just one side of the diamond. This gospel unity thing is more like the shine that gleans out of the diamond. It's the result, it's the brightness of the gospel that shines forth from it, not just one facet of it. But as we'll see here in our passage, what this brightness does is that before it fixes our relationships, it first reveals our flaws which is exactly why Paul was put in prison. Remember, Paul was imprisoned by the Jewish Pharisees and by the Romans because the gospel he preached says that not one race, not one demographic of people on earth is closer to God than any other. The gospel Paul preached just says that everyone has equal access to him through Christ. And this message, what it did, is it exposed the Pharisees who believed that their people group their demographic was closer to God than others. So what do they do? They imprisoned Paul and later killed him for it, which is where he's writing the letter of Ephesians from. Remember, he was writing it from the prison he'll eventually be killed in. The gospel exposes our flaws before it fixes our relationships. And if we, CCC, if we ever want to experience what Jesus actually meant when he looked at his disciples and said, family, if we even want to come close to tasting what that's like, we got to have the courage to face the flaws that the Pharisees didn't have of what the gospel shows us, okay? So what is it? What's so painfully glorious about gospel unity? Well, let's, let's get into it. This is God's Word, taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Thus says the Lord. Three things I want to point out from the passage. First, the gospel unity Paul suffered for. Second, the reason he never stopped preaching it. And third, the way God uses it. Okay, the gospel unity Paul suffered for, the reason he never stopped preaching it, and how God's going to use it. Let's start with the first point, the gospel unity that Paul suffered for. Look at verse 1. Look at how Paul introduces himself there. He said, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, this is interesting. Why did Paul say, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Why did he introduce himself as that? Wasn't he a prisoner of Rome? Wasn't he a prisoner of the Jewish Pharisees? Why didn't he say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Rome, or the prisoner of the Jewish Pharisees? He didn't. He said, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, although he was put in prison by the Pharisees and he was wearing Roman chains. Why? Because he knows it's his choice to preach the gospel that got him in trouble. He's a prisoner of Christ. Jesus chose this life for him, and he gladly accepted But there's a specific part of this gospel that Jesus has appointed him to preach that actually got him in trouble. Not the whole thing, but there's one part that got him in trouble with the Pharisees. Which part? Well, he tells us in verses 3 to 5. He said, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So there's something new, apparently, in the New Testament, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Stick with me. So apparently, there's a subsection of the greater gospel chapter that God hasn't revealed to anyone else until the New Testament era came to the apostles and prophets. Okay, let me just explain briefly. This does not, therefore, give license for anyone, for any Christian to just go around and claim that I have new revelation from God, okay? Who did, God, who did Paul specifically say God gave this revelation to? Just the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament, okay? Not you, not me. And this new mystery is not a big secret, Look at verse 4. Paul says that when you read this, you'll get insight into the mystery. Read what? The New Testament, the Bible, the Word of God, the letters written by these apostles and these prophets who God revealed the mystery to. Okay, so we don't go around speculating what God's mystery is as if we don't know it. Just read the New Testament. 
That's where the mystery is revealed. When you read it, you'll see it. Well, what is this new mystery, this gospel mystery that got Paul in trouble? He tells us in verse 6, Paul says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, in other words, any race, not just Israelites, any people groups, can be fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised salvation in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Three things. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised salvation. And that's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? Because we're building up to this new mystery, and all Paul said was, don't be racist. <laughs> It's like, is that even a mystery? Like, shouldn't that be obvious? But there's much more to it, okay? It's not just that. Stick with me here a little bit. This is going to be a bit confusing, but I have to, I have to go through it because you can't really see it in your English translations. But if you read the Greek, what Paul actually says, he, do, he doesn't just say that all races can be fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus, okay? There's, there's something he added. In, in, each, in the beginning of each of these phrases in the Greek, Paul starts off each sentence with a word, or with three words rather, one each, that all starts with the prefix S-Y. Just like how we in English would say synergy, or synonymous, or symmetrical. It's kind of the same in the Greek. The prefix S-Y means the same or equal, right? Synergy means the same energy. Synonymous means the same meaning. Uh, symmetrical means equal shape, right? It means equal. It means the same. And what, what Pashi says in Greek in verse 6 is that the Gentiles, anyone who received Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, are synkleronoma, equal heirs, sisoma, equal body, and symatosh, equal sharers in the kingdom of God with the Jews. Stick with me a little longer. We're getting closer to the actual mystery. The new mystery is not that other nations are welcomed into God's kingdom. Okay, that's, that's no mystery. That's always been the case from the Old Testament. We just read it earlier in our assurance, of, I mean, in our uh, call to worship in the Psalms, right? Clap your hands, all peoples, he says. God reigns over all the nations, sing praises all the earth. That's Old Testament. Non-Israelites have always been welcomed into Israel. That's not the new mystery. The new mystery isn't that other nations are welcome to be citizened in God's kingdom. The new mystery is that they all have equal citizenship in God's kingdom. Sinkleronoma, Sisoma, and Simitosh. See, the Pharisees never had a problem with letting non-Jews come and worship Yahweh. That's always been allowed. The problem is they treated them like second-class citizens. That's the issue. When they go to the temple, they will have this Gentile court area where the Gentiles couldn't go closer to God in the center. They had to stay on the outside. And when they wanted to worship Yahweh, they had to perform all these purifying rites that Jews didn't have to do. And Paul's here saying what the death of Christ showed us is that no one is a second-class citizen. There should be no such thing as a Gentile court. All should be accepted equally. And before we go, you tell those racist Pharisees, Paul, you tell them what's good. Let's pause and think about the ways we fall into the same mistakes today. Do we not fall into the same hole? 
Well, what do you mean, Tez? We, we accept everyone into God's kingdom through Christ. Sure, but do we not at times still view some as second-class citizens? Do we not, oh, you Reformed Christians, at times look at those who come from the charismatic camp and say, all right, you guys are in, but just so you know, you barely made it. Just so it's clear. And vice versa, I've heard people from the charismatic camp look at Reformed Christians with the same attitude. Younger, hipper type Christians look at the older, traditionalistic type Christians and say, you guys are really lucky that it's based on grace. Older Christians looking at the hip, seeker-friendly type churches and go, I guess Jesus can forgive sellouts as well. I'm not saying these things, by the way. I'm just telling you what's out there, okay? It's a jungle out there. <laughs> I'm not saying we can't point out the flaws in different Christians. I'm not saying we can't point out the flaws in different churches or different traditions. Of course we can. Rebuke with the spirit of gentleness, Paul says, if necessary. The point here isn't to ignore the flaws. The point here is to never think that their flaws make them second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Why? Because we're all in here by grace to begin with. The second you think about a particular Christian and you say to yourself, man, he got lucky, that one. That is the very second you forgot that you got lucky too. And if enough people in church forget that, the gospel shine will lose its luster and the gospel unity will slowly fade. But Paul never forgot, you see. He never stopped being amazed at his own salvation, which is why he kept preaching the gospel of unity. And this leads us to our second point, the reason why Paul never stopped preaching. Let's go to verse 7 and move on in the passage. What kept Paul going? Of this gospel, he said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, okay? It was God's grace and power that kept him going. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper here. What was actually the point of motivation? What did God's grace and power actually internally do to Paul, which therefore drove him forward till the end? Well, let's look at what Paul says in verse 8. God's grace and power made him ponder something. In verse 8, Paul says, to me, to me, out of all people, to me, a murderer. Remember, Paul used to murder Gentile Christians. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The fuel that gave Paul the energy to keep going and stay faithful till the end comes from the question, me? God, out of all people, you want me? See, I think us Christians, especially those of us who've been Christians for a long time, we've stopped being amazed at the fact that God chose us. We've, we forgot. We no longer go, man, 
Me? <laughs> Remember how some of you felt that when you first came to Christ? Where'd that feeling go, huh? Me? We're no longer amazed by it, which is why we now instead go, Ugh, you? We're so focused on how other people barely make it because we've forgotten how we barely made it too. This is the same poison that was inside of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees had what I'm going to call a sense of innate and situational self-enchantment. Innate and situational self-enchantment. What do I mean by that? Innate self-enchantment is the idea that there's something innate about your personhood, maybe it's your race, maybe it's your gender, maybe it's the family you were born into, I don't know. Something innate about you that somehow makes you more enchanting to God compared to others. Situational self-enchantment is the idea that there's something about your life circumstances that make you more enchanting to God than others. Maybe it's how rich you are. Maybe it's how poor you are. You know, people glorify prosperity, they also glorify poverty. Maybe it's your moral accomplishments. Maybe it's a particular social justice issue you've really leaned, leaned into. Whatever it is, there's something about your life circumstances that makes you feel like you're more enchanting to God than others. The Pharisees were plagued by both innate and situational self-enchantment. They believed that by virtue of their race and by their moral accomplishments, they're more enchanting to God. They were never amazed at the fact that God wanted them. They never felt unworthy, so they viewed everyone else who aren't like them as less worthy. But you see, Paul, he never felt worthy. This is the end of his life. This is after he's done so much for the kingdom. He's been imprisoned for years for preaching the gospel. By the end of his life, he's still asking the question, me? He never lost the awe. And that's why in verse 9 he said, I'll spend the rest of my life bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. He was driven by the question, me till the end. But there is one more thing that drove him. He wasn't only amazed by the gap of God's mercy and his unworthiness, okay? He was also driven by the way he knows how God will use the fruits of his labor at the end, which is what he talks about in the last section of this passage. Let's go to our last point. The way God uses the fruit of Paul's ministry. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. He says, the reason I'm doing all this is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Simple sentence, but it's profound. Why? Well, who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Who are, who's Paul talking about here? Well, remember, Paul already mentioned this in chapter 2. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Remember who that was? Satan himself. So think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, out of all the things that God's created, the one thing 
that God's going to use to gloriously boast over the gates of hell with is not the many galaxies that he's made or the sons thereof. It's not the grandeur beasts he's brought to life on earth. He's not going to boast over Satan with all the planets he's made and their glory. It's not the size of your church or the many financial breakthroughs your members experience. Those are not the things God's going to use to boast over Satan with. At the end of the day, the crowning jewel, the final boast that God will present to Satan as a testimony of his unmistakable victory is the gospel unity that each of you have with one another. Think about that. When you embrace another Christian, you wouldn't have ordinarily embraced because of the gospel. When you treat equally another person, you wouldn't have otherwise treated equally because of the gospel. God, in those moments, is boasting over the gates of hell. You see how profound that is? And the chief of all of those moments is when we pray together. Paul says that in verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. Boldness and access there is prayer. On Sundays, many churches in many countries with many skin colors and many languages come together and worship God and pray to Him and he declares his victory over Satan through it. So let's bring this all together, okay, in, in, in a tangible way. Do I, as a Reformed Christian, have many thoughts for my non-Reformed brothers and sisters? Oh, I do. Do they have many thoughts for me? I'm sure they do. Do most of us here who I presumed are more westernized Christians, have thoughts for the more traditionalistic older Christians who come from a more mono-ethnic church. I'm sure you do. And let me tell you, they have thoughts for you as well. Or let's bring this down to a more personal level, okay? Are there certain individuals here within our own church that you would love to give a piece of your mind to? Are there Christians here that you find immature and lacking of all that is true, good, and beautiful? I'm sure there are. I'm not saying you should hide from those. I'm not saying you should not have hard conversations with one another when needed. Talk to them. Talk to each other. Just don't talk to them as if they're second-class citizen. Don't approach them as if the difference you have with them or the maturity you have over them gives you more of a right to be in God's kingdom than they do, because it doesn't, and you don't. And the only way we can have that kind of humility is if we never lose the wonder of why me. Don't lose that. The more you ponder upon that question, the more you embrace the worst of sinners. And the more you do that, when you do that, God shows off to the gates of hell what the cross can do. Is it worth it? 
Paul thought so. He died for it. Now, as, as I come to a close, I do want to redirect our attention here just, just a little bit because Paul here is actually talking more to the Gentiles than he is to the Pharisees. Where do we see that? Look at verse 1 again. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He's talking to the Gentiles here. So the undertone is actually less of a rebuke for the Pharisees, and it's more of an invitation for the Gentiles. So I wanted to end this sermon with that same spirit. If you're here today and you feel like a quote-unquote Gentile, not by race, because we're all Gentiles by race, but you feel like a Gentile, as in you feel unworthy of God's kingdom. Or maybe you feel invited, but only as a second-class citizen. Hear God's word here that says you're not. You're not. There's not one thing about the person sitting next to you, whether innate or situational, that makes them more deserving than you to be here. And look, if you keep waiting to enter to God's kingdom through Christ until you have your life put together, then you know what? You'll lose the awe of why me from the get-go. You'll, you'll enter in with a pharisaical attitude to begin with. Don't come in when your life's put together. Jesus came for the wretched, not the righteous. And for those who are here, who perhaps have been a Christian for a long time, you've been in God's kingdom, you believe in God's grace, you feel like you're a part of the church for a while now, I want to invite you to fight for the Gentiles, like Paul did here, to pursue those who feel unworthy. Look at verse 13, our last verse. Paul told the Gentiles, don't lose heart. Come in. Enter through Christ. Stay in through Christ. This is why I'm suffering. It's for you. It's for your glory. In other words, your salvation. Paul fought and suffered for their salvation. And Christians, I want to remind you at this time of the one who fought and suffered for your salvation. Long-standing church members, remember the one who died so that you may be glorified with him. You, out of all people, why you? Never lose that awe. And go. Tell others about him. Tell the Gentiles. Tell those who feel unworthy of the one who died to save even the chief of sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you forgive your church, those who forget daily what it means to be saved by grace and grace alone. Our pride is an indication of that. Help us experience the rest and the joy that we have in Christ, who tells us it's by his work we're in, not by our own. And may that rest translate to the way we embrace others. May the worst of sinners not look like an abomination to our eyes. May they look like a precious 
soul that Christ is reaching out to. Why? Because we are the worst of sinners. Help everyone in this church never forget that. And may that question of why me, why should I gain from his reward, be the fuel that drives every single one of us here till the end as a prisoner of Christ, whatever it is you demand from our lives as we faithfully preach and declare the gospel. In this momentary place, earth, until we reach home in your embrace. In your son's name and in his name alone, we pray.